Well, we are, uh, we're a few weeks into a series called the Sermon on the Mount, and we're looking at Jesus. And I have to tell you, uh, I love studying the person of Jesus. And I don't know what your story is, but for me, uh, a big part of my story, I walked away uh, from the church. I grew up in the church and then bailed on it. Um, after some bad experiences, uh, I was just like, this is what Christianity is all about. Uh, count me out. I don't want anything to do with it. Uh, but there was always something about Jesus that I couldn't shake. It was almost like he was pursuing me. And uh, much later in life, I decided to stop running and to turn my attention on Jesus. And he wrecked my life for good. And now I'm a pastor. So, um, but that said, I still, I, I absolutely love uh, studying the person of Jesus and, and helping people come to know and experience him. Because uh, I still believe that he is in the business of changing lives. And so regardless of where you might fall on the spiritual spectrum and regardless of what you might believe or not believe about who Jesus actually was or is, um, one of the things that I like to say when it comes to Mosaic, uh, all are welcome here, um, regardless of what you believe or what you don't believe. Uh, But while we're together, we're going to have just a candid conversation about Jesus and really look at who he was or who he claimed to be and uh, and dig in and see what God's going to do. And so that's what we've been doing. And we've been looking at a specific time in his life at the very beginning of his public ministry. And so he's been traveling, and we're told he's doing all kinds of miracles. And in the process, when you perform things that people can't explain, people start showing up. And the crowd starts growing because people want to know, who is this guy? How how does he do the things that he's doing? And are the things that people have told me about him actually true? Did he really do that? Uh, Because people are saying he did. And so all these people are showing up in this crowd from all over the faith spectrum and belief spectrum. Some people are very religious uh, and and believe in God. Other people who believe in other gods. And some people don't believe in God. People just kind of all over, including uh, there's probably Romans who are present, kind of on the outskirts, listening in. and, And everybody's tuning in. And in this moment, Jesus stands up and he begins to proclaim, this is who I am. This is what I came to do. And this is what God is doing in the world. And so this is what we're looking at, and one of the things that we find, and we've looked at this every week, is some of the things that Jesus says strike us as very strange. They completely contradict the way that we know the world works. They are paradoxes. And so Jesus doesn't disappoint on this. And so he steps up, and this is how he begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. And then as we looked at last week, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this is where I want to hone in this morning. He said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Right now, we've gone out of our way to point out how countercultural and paradoxical the things Jesus are saying is, but I think this one takes the cake. And I will say what I said last week. I don't think any of us are naturally inclined to believe this. Because I think this flies in the face of everything we know about how the world works and who is actually blessed and who actually gets ahead, and it's not the meek. Right? When is the last time? Think about the people we, we, the characters we portray in films. When is the last time that you watched a film and the hero that is being celebrated in the film is somebody who is really, really meek, who said meek things, did meek things, didn't do things because he was or her, she was meek. You know, like we don't watch films you know, with characters that stand up and say things like, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will 
be very grateful if you let me go home now. <laughs> you know, like, we don't watch things like that. That's not the way the films portray him. Right? He says very bold things like, and I will have my vengeance in this day, this life, or the next. You know, I, I, I dare you. Like, when, how many films have you seen where like, the, the really climactic moment of the film that everything has been building to is a moment where the hero of the story chooses not to do something in meekness. They don't tend to, to carry out vengeance or act even though they were wronged. Very few stories like that. Very few films. In fact, the stories we tend to pay money to watch and to hear and see right, are ones where the first half of the film are all the horrible things happening to the hero. Right? And then the second half of the film, that hero is basically enacting horrible things on all those people that did the horrible things to them or to somebody else. Right? There are films like Gladiator would be one. Uh, films like Braveheart or Kill Bill right? or Count of Monte Cristo is a great one. Right? Or Inglorious Bastards or Django Unchained, or basically any Quentin Tarantino film. <laughs> you know, they're all the same. Right? They, these are the films that we tend to watch because culturally we don't celebrate meekness. Uh, we don't. The stories we tell, the heroes we celebrate, the people we admire, they're not, they're not generally meek. You know, like this week as I was sitting on this text, I was in my office and just kind of started looking around and, at the books on the shelves, and, and I love to read, and, and I love to study leadership and leaders, people who just have... Uh, an impact on the world that is extraordinary. I, I love to study. And so I was just looking at the names of the people on some of these books, and it dawned on me the kind of people that tend to write books, especially on things like leadership and impact and having a platform, right? People like, these are just some of the names, right? Uh, Michael Hyatt, Jack Welch, Jim Collins, Steve Jobs, Tom Perkins, John Maxwell, right? In, in the process, it dawned on me, like, these are like strong Alpha male or alpha female, Carly Fiorina as well. I have one of those books. That's not an endorsement, by the way. This is just a good book on leadership. Um, you know, but these are the kinds of people, like, they're strong people. They're not meek people. The people who attend writing books, they're deemed authorities. They have big, uh, uh, big platforms. They tend to speak to thousands of people and write books. If we can say one thing about them is they are not meek. Right? And so I think if we were to rewrite this beatitude based on what we know about how the world works and the kind of people that get ahead, we might write something like this. Right, Blessed are the meek, for though he come in last, he's a really nice guy. Right? A loser, but really swell. You know? um, or maybe this. Right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall receive a certificate of participation. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Enjoy it. You know? Or, you know, blessed are the meek, for she will be named Miss Congeniality. You know? like, this is just how we tend to view, how we tend to view meek people. Right? And so we, when we think of meek people, meek people are, are in our minds, not, not the blessed ones. They don't tend to lead large organizations. They are generally perceived as influential. They don't generally have large platforms. They're not t- generally featured in inter- interviews or have their name in lights. They aren't people uh, generally clamoring for, clamoring for their attention or trying to figure out how to be like them. Uh, we don't generally give them TV shows or write stories and make movies about them. Meek people are not the people that we celebrate. And so when Jesus stands up and says, blessed are the meek, for they inherit the earth, it just flies in the face of everything that we know about how the world works and who gets ahead. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Right? And that's really the question, right? Who gets the earth? Right in the end, like who gets it? In this life, who inherits it? Who does it belong to? Right? Is it the loud people? Right? The strong and beautiful people? Right? The people who know how to throw elbows at just the right times and just the right places? Right? The people who know how to leverage their assets? Right? The really strong people? The bold people? People who make their mark? 
right? People who accumulate things for themselves and then use what they've accumulated to accumulate more. Who gets the earth, right? Is it only the first string people, the varsity people, right? The wealthy, the smart, the thin, the beautiful, the intelligent, right? Do the entrepreneurs get the earth? Those who are innovative, who take risks and push the envelope and create things that didn't exist before, who gets the earth? Is the people who step on people, put the boot on the neck, know how to work it and manipulate people for their advantage? Is it those who destroy and dominate others? Because that's the question. Who gets the earth? It was the question in Jesus' day, and I would submit to you, uh, it's the same question for us. And, and because, and let's just be honest, right? We know who gets the earth. Certain kinds of people get the earth, right? The Donald Trumps get the earth, right? The bold, right? The confident in themselves, the very assertive, right? The people who go and take life by the horns, right? Those who climb the ladder. Certain people get the earth and certain people don't, right? Certain people get ahead and certain people fall behind, Certain people have more, other people lack. Certain people work harder and make the right choices and just pick themselves up by their bootstraps, and other people are lazy and don't, right? Who gets the earth? Now, when Jesus says this, right, he's doing something that at our reading we don't initially pick up on because we're 2,000 years removed on the other side of the world. But when Jesus does this, he wasn't saying something to these people that they had never heard before, right? It strikes us, I think, as pretty strange, shocking jolting maybe even. It's just like, that doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't believe that at all. It's new. But to those who Jesus was speaking to, uh, it was not. In fact, so Jesus, was, what he was doing in this moment is called a remez. Uh, many scholars suggest this, and I definitely agree with them. It's a very obvious one. And a remez is basically when you use a phrase that other people already know in order to connect the two, and it brings to mind all kind of like associations and stuff. So like, for example, if I was to say the words, I have a dream, right? The moment that I say it, Right, your, your mind immediately connects it to all different kinds of associations. Sorry, I've got to fix this. <laughs> My ear. There we go. Okay. So when I say that, you know, for some of you immediately, you see like the black and white TV image. Right? Maybe you see Martin Luther King standing behind that podium. Right? And the people all around him sprawled out on the Lincoln Memorial steps. And you hear that loud, booming voice. Or for many of us, we immediately connect it to some of the things that Jesus said. Uh, I'm sorry, not Jesus. Martin Luther King. Right? You know, and so we, we hear things, uh, we immediately associate it with some of the things like he said in that great speech. So things like, you know, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Right? Or for some of us, we might connect it to some of the biblical allusions that he made in his speech about justice and righteousness rolling down. Uh, like an ever-flowing stream. Or when he said, you know, I dream of a day when my kids will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, right? And so the moment that I say, I have a dream, right, your mind starts to connect to those associations. And Jesus in this moment is doing the exact same thing, right? Because many in the audience, if you had a religious bone in your body, if you spent any time a part of the religious Judeo, uh, the Jewish community, Right, you knew the Psalms inside and out. They were the songs that you sang since you were a little child. Many of them had many of them memorized. And so for many in his audience, the moment that he said the words meek and, and inherit the earth, their mind immediately went to Psalm 37. Right, for they would, the moment he said it, they were like, oh, that's what he's talking about Psalm 37. Because in Psalm 37, we find the meek, inheriting the earth. And we actually find the phrase inheriting the earth five times. And so they knew this the moment he said it and they would have known how Psalm 37 begins. And it's like this. It begins with do not fret 
Right? Don't worry. Relax. It's okay. Because those who are evil uh, or, or be envious of those who do wrong, for like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Right? Notice verse 9. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Verse 11. But the meek will inherit the land. So Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we have this almost verbatim in Psalm 37. Notice verse 18. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care, and their inheritance uh, will endure forever. And verse 22. Those the Lord blesses will inherit the land, right? So immediately, I mean, we've got blessed, uh, we've got the meek, and we've got inherit the earth all right here. And it begins with, don't worry, right? Don't, don't freak out, right? Relax, because things will not always be as they are right now, right? And I love the way that Brian Zahn puts this, and this is how he rephrases Jesus's beatitude here. He says this, it says, blessed are the gentle and trusting, who are not grasping and clutching, for God will personally guarantee their share when heaven comes to earth. Right? Almost the verbatim, the same thing we have in Psalm 37. Right? When Jesus speaks this, you've got to understand how his audience heard this. Because for many of them, even though they had heard this truth, that the meek are going to inherit the earth since they were, you know, as soon as they could speak and hear and, and understand language, this would have been a very hard thing to accept. Right, because they were looking around at the world, and like us, they knew that this is not the way that the world works. And Jesus is speaking this into a specific cultural context where this doesn't seem to make sense at all. Because at this time, they had lost the earth. Right, the Roman Empire was carving up the earth and doling it out. Right, at this point, the Roman Empire stretched from like Britain all the way to India. Right, so Rome... Rome were the people inheriting the earth. And they were not doing it meekly, that's for sure. They were doing it with very large armies and swords. And so they would come in and and they would say, you you know, they would conquer a people and say, you need to confess that Caesar is Lord. Right? And if you said yes, right, you would then be conquered. They would move and station soldiers in your land. They would tax you heavily in order to pay for them to go take over more land. Right? And if in the moment you said, oh, no, no, Caesar is not Lord. Yahweh is Lord or whoever. Uh, then they would kill you and hang you on a cross to illustrate to the world what happens when you defy Rome. Right? And, so, and, and so this is basically what has happened. And the Jewish people are looking around, and Rome has conquered them. They are heavily taxed. It is a heavy burden. They are an oppressed, marginalized people. There are soldiers stationed there. They're humiliated. Right? They're disillusioned. They know these words. This is not a new truth to them, but they, there's no way they believe it. Their initial feeling, their initial reaction to Jesus' words would have been, oh, come on, Jesus. You know this isn't the case. Look around you. Look at the world as it is. This is not the way the world works. You know, so the question of who inherits the, the earth, well, clearly Rome inherits the earth. Right? Those with big swords. Right, those who are sourced very well militarily and strategic and organized and can, can create a transportation system and a common currency, they inherit the earth. And the nagging fear, the nagging fear for many in Jesus' audience was that the, the earth is getting carved up and doled out and we're getting left behind. Right? In fact, we're not, we're not getting anything. Right? We're, we're completely left in the dust. And this is, this is a nagging fear uh, that has been around for a long time, right? That, the earth, that life is just passing me by, you know? And there are people who inherit the earth, 
but they're not people like me. You know, and I'm looking around, and, and they're experiencing success, and they seem to have their life all together. You know, and they've achieved this lifestyle, and they seem to, you know, they get to drive that, and they get to vacation there, and they get to live in that home. You know, so what about me? I'm falling behind. People like me apparently don't, don't get theirs. You know, it's the talented, the well-educated, the people from the right family, right? The people who already have money, so then they can go and actually make real money. Right? It's the bold and the beautiful, right? the fast and the on top of things, the strategic and the disciplined. Right? They inherit the earth, and I'm, I'm missing out. All right? It's called keeping up with the Romans. It's been around for a long time. Right? And I think it fleshes itself out in our lives in a lot of different ways. I don't know if you've ever been invited to a party or an event, and you were sure that the attire was casual. Right? And maybe you even got into like an argument with your significant other. Not that this has not ever happened to us. You know, but you, know, you, you argued and you fought and you knew it was casual and you insisted on wearing your joggers, which gentlemen are still just sweatpants. Just, you know. and, and you showed up and you got there and the moment you walked in, you knew you were wrong. And you are way underdressed for this event. Right? And you remember like, how much time and energy you expended over the course of the evening trying to, to, to explain to people, like, no, it's her fault, or, or it was his fault. Like, I have this great outfit I could have worn tonight. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I, I, you know. Why do we do that? You know, or you ever find yourself where you have like, an argument with somebody, a conflict, you're fighting, right? and then and you, long after it's over, you still find yourself like, replaying it in your head. And that time you said what you really wanted to say, and you put them in their place. You know, like, am I the only one who does this, by the way? Literally, yesterday, I'm driving around, and out loud, I'm having this conversation, arguing with this person, and I'm winning this argument, and saying things in all the right ways, and this this is a conflict I had six months ago, right? It is over, and I'm doing it out loud, and I caught myself, I'm like, oh my goodness, what's my problem, you know? Right? And I think part of it is because of this sense, this nagging feeling that life is passing us by, that we're not getting ours, and we have to present ourselves like we really are. You know, it's like the mom who has like that morning where everything is falling apart in the home, and you're scrambling just trying to get the kids off to school, and then right when you're walking out, like you have a blown-out diaper and somebody pukes on themselves, you know, and you're trying to like get them all cleaned up, and then you get them out the door, and they spill on themselves anyway, And you get to the school, and there's like the kid with the hair that's all messed up, and the other one with the pants and the shirt that's on backwards, and you're like, oh my goodness. And then in that moment, the mom walks up who has like the kids with the iron t-shirts and the pleated pants, which by the way is totally sinful and wrong, you know. And like, what do you do in that moment? What do you feel like the internal need to do is to immediately explain why things are the way they are? You know, it's just like, it's just been one of those mornings, you know, it's my husband's fault, he hasn't been around to help out, or he's the one that dressed the kids, or, you know, and, and immediately... We feel this need to have to justify ourselves and, and, and present ourselves a certain way. Why? And I would suggest, at least in part, because of this haunting, nagging fear that everybody else has it together and I'm falling behind. Right? And everybody else is well-equipped and, and I'm missing my slice of the pie. Right? It's that underlying fear that people like me, we don't, we don't get the earth. We don't get ours. It's, it's the well-organized people. 
right? It's the morning people. Morning people get the earth, right? People, we don't like them at all, right? It's the disciplined people, right? It's the varsity people, not the, not the JV bench, right? It's the professionals, not the amateurs, right? It's, it's the money smart, the type A personalities. It's the Donald Trumps of the world who inherit the earth, right? The competitive, the large and in charge, success-oriented, take the world by the horns. They get the earth, and that's in the end who's actually blessed. And Jesus stands up to this crowd, many of whom are oppressed and marginalized and have very little. And he says, blessed are the meek, for they inherit the earth. And it's all upside down. It's countercultural. It's paradoxical. So, so why are we talking about this? And why is this important for us to engage? And I would suggest the reason this is so, so, so important for us is because God is up to something, right? He is up to something in the world now, right? And we are invited to be a part of it now, right? You see, there's, there's one way uh, of living one's life and, and being in the world, and we'll just call it what we've called it pretty much throughout this series. And it's, it's just the way of the world. It's the way the world works, right? And we know the way that the world works, Right? In the way the world works, greed is one, is one of the primary engines, right? Getting mine, right? And we know that if you don't get out and take it, if you don't hustle, if you don't work hard and just snatch it up, somebody else is going to get there first and take it from you, right? And, 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 the, and how the world works, right? Elbows are often necessary. You throw them when you got to throw them, right? Manipulation is just part of the game, right? You manipulate situations, you manipulate your money, you manipulate people, you manipulate the truth if need be, right? If you're in a business situation and you need to land this deal and telling the truth and actually doing the right thing is going to affect the bottom line, might cost you some money, right? Then in that situation, you just kind of overlook that truth, bend it a little bit, right? Just what you got to do. It's just the way this business works, right? It's fine. Intimidation, totally fine. Because in this world, the fast, the well-organized, the greedy, the driven, those with power, that's who's blessed. Right? So bite, kick, scratch, pull hair, whatever you got to do to get ahead. Right? But Jesus pronounces to us in the Beatitudes, on the cross, in his life, that there's a very different way. Right? One of those ways, the kingdom of heaven, right, is generosity. Not about hoarding and getting and keeping, but giving. Right? Things like in this world, this reality, this life, things like compassion, right, which is co-suffering is what it means, right? Rather than shielding myself from pain, I'm going to enter in and, and suffer with you in order to bless you, to love you, to serve you, right? It is about serving others, right? It's a, rather than getting mine, I'm helping you get yours. It's putting your needs, your desires, your dreams, your hopes all ahead of my own. Very countercultural, right? Very, very different. And here's the thing. You can go ahead and throw the picture up if you would. Depending on your church background, if you have a church background, one of the things that we often do in Christianity and in the church world is we treat these two worlds as altogether different, and we often talk about them like they are completely separate and have very little or nothing to do with one another, right? And so we say, oh yeah, there's, there's the way of the world, and, yeah, and then there's God's way, right? There's the secular 
And then there's the holy, right? There's, there's earth and the world and just the way things are. And then there's heaven and this kind of thing. And they're, and they're separate, right? And someday, some, like right now, we just kind of have to, we're in the earth, we're on the world, and so we just kind of have to, you know, bide our time, do what we can, but we're just waiting for that great day when either we die or Jesus comes back and he whisks us away to never, never land, right? One glad morning, we fly away, right? And that's the way that we often uh, talk about it. And I'll just say, the reason this is so important is I get in conversations as a pastor fairly often where people will loathe the way that the world is. And they will talk about, you know, this and that, and the world is going to hell in a bread basket, and, you know, take back America, pukey, blah, blah, blah. You know, and they'll say things like this, but they'll frame it in such a way, like God has nothing to do with this. And, and, and they'll, they'll talk about it in such a way to basically justify not engaging not getting involved, right? To explain away any sense of responsibility or calling and nothing, 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 nothing could be further from the truth, right? The traditional Jewish understanding of the world to come, what we call heaven, right? As, and which, by the way, Jesus fully subscribed to and articulated, as did all of the early, early Christian writers, right? The Orthodox Christian understanding of the world to come is that these two, heaven and earth, one day will no longer be two, but they will come together and become one. That a day is coming, and a movement has begun in Jesus where God's kingdom, God's reign, God's rule, God's desire, the way of the kingdom of God will be fully present here. Right here. You know, the, so the scriptures end with things like this. When you go to Revelation, words like this. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And God takes up residence here. Right? It does not end with all of us punching our get-to-heaven-free card or get-out-of-hell-free card and taking us on a ferry to the ether or wherever. Meanwhile, while the world, you know, implodes or burns or whatever, whatever, right? It's very different. This is one of the reasons that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And this is one of those things, like we talked about this before, but I feel like this is one of those things we've got to keep coming back to because so much of our language and let's be honest, some of our Christian literature, like the Left Behind series, right, which is fiction, by the way, right, it shapes the way that we understand heaven and the way that we understand this life. And so it's amazing, even as a parent of an eight and five year old, how often I, we have to keep coming back to this and like re teaching them because they are reading the books and they're hearing the songs and they're seeing the videos and whatever else. And all of it leads them to believe that when it comes to heaven and God's work and desire and eternity, that it's over there, that God is over there, that all of that is somewhere else. And so always we've got to keep bringing them back and be like, no, girls, remember, right? Jesus started something here and it's going to be fulfilled here. Right? And we're going to be together here. Heaven and earth are becoming one. Right? And Jesus says, don't fret. Right? He alludes to Psalm 37 saying, don't worry. Don't fret. Things on this earth are not always going to be the way that they are. And there are some things about how this world works. 
right? Some things that might become the status quo and just business as usual, and that's just the way things work, and it just becomes kind of the thing that everybody is doing, but not all of those things are going to survive in the world to come. All right, so things like greed have no place, right, in the world to come. Things like betrayal and infidelity and using and abusing people, right, and, and manipulating uh, the weak and exploding or exploiting the, the marginal or exploding uh, the margini- marginalized, you know, hurting people, pushing others down to get ahead. All of those things will not survive in the kingdom of come. And the, uh, the kingdom come, and the reason I say this, the reason it's so important for us, for those of us who choose to follow Jesus, who are Christians in this world, what it means is a big part of what it means to be a Christian in this world is to give our lives to those things, to participate in those things that will continue on forever. And actually, in a sense, when we take part in those things, things like participating in works towards justice and acts of mercy and compassion and kindness and love and grace, in many ways, in those moments, what we are doing and participating in is, by its very nature, eternal. Right? It's participating in the eternal here and now. This is one of the reasons I would suggest to you that Jesus is always talking about eternal life. He's, it's not something like you die and it kicks in later. It's like, no, no, no. What Jesus is saying on, in the Beatitudes and on the side of that mountain is that God is starting something right now. And we, as followers of Jesus, get to be a part of that. And this is our call. Right, and this is our invitation, and this is the good news of the Beatitudes, that God is up to something here and now. Right, that Jesus is, has begun something that is slowly but surely turning the world upside down. And to those, to those who feel beaten down, and like you're falling behind, and like you're missing out, and you're not up to the task, Jesus is saying, you're really going to dig what God is up to. I love what Frederick uh, Dale Bruner says about the Beatitudes. He says this. First and literally, the Beatitudes are Jesus' surprisingly countercultural God bless yous to people in God-awful situations. I love that. I love that. Right? The Beatitudes are these expectant, expectant thrilling, uh, anticipating, intoxicating announcements that God is up to something. And if you feel like you're falling behind and that you don't measure up and that you're not good enough and that you're not worthy and that you're not getting yours, Jesus is saying, well, man, are you going to be pumped about what God is up to? Right? I, this is, I love this. This is uh, from Rob Bell, who's one of my primary sources this morning. And, uh, you know, whatever. You can call me what you want. I'll try to work in some more D.A. Carson and John Piper quotes next week to keep the truth police happy. Um, but here's what he says. Uh, and I, I love this. He says, maybe we could say this. Blessed are the quiet ones, the shy ones, the unnoticed, the wallflowers, the average. Blessed are the ones who live with a deep, nagging sense that life is passing them by and that they aren't getting their slice of the pie, that they aren't in some profound way keeping up. Fortunate are the meek. Blessed are those that can't seem to get it all together. Blessed are those who can't seem to get on top of things, who constantly feel like they fall short because God's world has plenty of room for them. Boom! I love that, guys. It's so good. That is the good news. The Beatitudes, guys, are good news because Jesus does not stand up and say, these are commands. These are imperatives. These are what you have to do. Instead, what he's saying to all of those who are beaten up and broken down, to all of those who don't feel worthy that God is up to something, right? To the unworthy, inferior, unsure, left out, left behind, left short, this is really good news. 
I love the way that Dallas Willard says this. He writes this. He says, you know, Jesus' fundamental message is this. It's the free availability of God's rule and righteousness to all of humanity through the reliance on Jesus himself, the person now loose in the world among us. The Beatitudes do this simply by taking those who, from a human point of view, are regarded as the most hopeless, the most beyond all possibility of God's blessing or even interest, and exhibiting them as enjoying God's touch and abundant provision from the heavens. And then get this, this last part is so good. The religious system of his day left the multitudes out. But Jesus welcomed them all into his kingdom. Anyone could come as well as any other. And they still can. And that is the gospel of the Beatitudes. Do you this morning need to be reminded that things will not always be as they are? That no matter how bad things are, that God is up to something new. Do you have this feeling that life is passing you by and the world is getting carved up and divided out and you're not getting your fair slice. Right, the gospel is Jesus' announcement to you that God's favor and blessing are yours. Right, and that his favor, his blessing, his love, his grace has never been based on merit. Never has. Never will be. Right, as we get ready to take communion, I'll end with this story. You know, this week I, I was dialoguing with a gal about baptism. Some of you guys know we have a, our next baptism service coming up. And uh, it's one of the funnest things that we do as a community because all we do is party. And we celebrate what God has been doing in the lives of some of the people here who are part of Mosaic. And, and baptism is not one of those things where you've got to go through a class and be confirmed and have all the right answers, and then you get baptized, right? In the scriptures, baptism was the first thing you did. The moment that you crossed that line of faith uh, and said, yes, Jesus, grace, love, life, yes, I need it, yes. That's when you got dunked in Jesus' name and began your journey, right? And so it's just saying, yes, Jesus. And so anyway, I was dialoguing with this gal, and her story is just so like, indicative of so many stories that that I'm a, I end up kind of being a part of as a pastor, right? But last month, we had talked, and, and through tears, Right, God had just kind of floored her, and she's like, you know what? Time to get baptized. I know I got it. I know it's the right thing to do. Jesus has called us to do it, and I'm ready. Let's do this thing. Tears are coming down her face. And then this week, uh, we had a different conversation, and she said, you know, um, it's been a rough month. I've been really busy. Uh, I, I have not made God the number one priority in my life, so I don't think I can get baptized. You know, I'm like, hold the phone. We need to talk about this. You know, because the idea behind that is this idea that I think we get sucked into a lot. You know, and that idea is that, that our Heavenly Father is a proud Heavenly Father, right? He, he carries, when we're doing really well anyway, right, he carries photos of us with his wallet to show off, and he's got a sticker on the back of his SUV that says that my kid is an honor student at Life University, you know, and he just brags to us all of his friends on the good weeks, right? But the moment we fall on our face, and the moment that addiction creeps back up, and the moment that we screw up with that same old thing, and we trip over that same brick, and we find ourselves on our face, like the sticker comes off and the pictures in his wallet come out because now his affections are not for us. Not this week, not this month. You know, so I told this guy, I was like, you got to understand, if you're not feeling worthy of God's love, you are more ready than you realize. And that just so you know, I said, I'm not going to try to pressure you into getting baptized. It's totally your choice. 
but whatever you do, don't do it because you're going to feel more worthy next month. And I'll tell you this. I said, I think if you say no now and then next month you do, you know, get A's on your spiritual report card and you do happen to make God the number one priority of your life and you're having great devotions and you're serving and doing all the right things and praying for people and you feel more worthy and get baptized then, you will be further from Jesus then than you are right now. Right? And that is the gospel of grace. And that is the gospel of the Beatitudes. What Jesus does not say in this Beatitude is, hey, you know what? Blessed are the meek because God really loves them. And so what you got to do is get really, really meek. And then God's going to pour out his blessing. <laughs> That's not that, guys. These are not commands. These are not imperatives. This is an, an, an announcement. And Jesus is simply saying to those who are poor in spirit, to those who are really bad at being spiritual and really bad at being good, to those who always seem to screw up, oh, God's blessing is on you. You're going to like what God's doing. Right? And to those of you who are in a state of mourning right now, and you're mourning the loss of something, and you're hurting, and you're bleeding out of everywhere, and you just feel like the tank is empty, empty and you're running on fumes, man, you're blessed too, because God is closer than you think. Right? And to those of you who are meek, who feel like life is passing you by, and who really gets blessed and gets to the earth are people not like you, who really have their stuff together, who are really organized and get up early and are knocking it out of the park, blessed are you because God is in your midst and you are going to love what he's up to. And so what we're going to do is we're going to finish. Guys, you can come on up. We're going we're to finish by worshiping together and taking communion. Right? And there's really like this twofold element when we do this as a community, as a church. In one sense, there's this profound individual element, you know, where we are reflecting what Jesus did on the cross for us. That despite all of our sin and shame, despite all the ways that we fall short, that Jesus chose to go to the cross anyway for us. And that through his blood, we are being changed. We have been redeemed. We are being reconciled to God. And in a personal way, it's very, very deeply personal and meaningful. But there's also a communal element. Right, because we do this in public together, right? And, and almost as like an act of rebellion in saying we acknowledge together that the world as it is is not always the way that it will be and that we are following Jesus and choosing to live a different way, right? A way that's not marked by greed and isn't married to throwing elbows and getting what we can while we can, getting mine. Rather that we are rebelling against that whole thing and participating in a different reality, walking in a different way, being a part of ushering in God's kingdom right here.